There are some Sundays when, when, I'm, when I'm battling and wrestling with God in terms of what I'm going to say. And today is one of those Sundays because on the one hand, um, on the one hand, I'm your pastor. And so I know that many of you walk, walked in here today with a lot of needs, broken, just tons of things going on in your life and desperately wanting to encounter God. It's God to heal you, transform you, to answer your prayers. This, 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 that. And then this other hand where I hear God saying, Peter, what they need to hear today is a clear declaration of who I am. So I'm sitting here going, oh, but they're going to sit there and go, I have these needs. I'm broken. No, no, no. And, 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 and I want to, and God's going, remind them who I, but that's not going to. And then, of course, I'm reminded, you guys, that when I preach this kind of sermon, there's a part of you that sits there and there's sort of this disjointed thing going on in your head because Monday through Saturday, you are bombarded Parted with the message that says the world revolves around you. So when you come in here on a Sunday morning and you hear me not address the world revolving around you, there's this thing in you that says, oh, but this isn't helpful. This isn't relevant. This is boring. This is that. And so today God's going even more so, don't cater to their needs. Remind them who I am. So that's what I'm going to do. <laughs> Sometimes I tell people that I gauge how well I've done in my preaching by how many people like walk out in the middle of the sermon because I, I fully, fully believe that seriously, if truth is being proclaimed, not because I mean to be offensive, if truth is being proclaimed, some of you will not like it. And you're going to say, I thought God is love. He is love. Well, I thought, see, okay, I'm just going to, I'm just going to preach. Hey, Darius, I'm glad you're sitting up front, man. I'm going to need you today. I'm going to need you today, the rest of you guys. All right, Acts chapter 17, okay? Turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 17. We are going through, we are going through uh, our sermon series, the book of Acts. And yes, we have, uh, I think David Swanson said this, there's sort of two models of preaching, book of Acts in our church. There's Pastor Peter model, where we'll spend three Sundays in one chapter. And then there's Pastor David and Pastor Michael model, which is they'll preach through a chapter a week, you know? So somehow, like, we'll balance each other out, I think. Okay. So we are spending... Uh, two more Sundays on Acts chapter 17, verses 16 to 31. This is the famous story, the text of Paul in Athens, okay? And, and here it is. We're going to go ahead and read the text again, um, and then we'll come back and, and pick up part two. So while Paul was waiting for them, that's Paul uh, waiting for Silas and Timothy in Athens, he was greatly distressed. And we preached, uh, talked about this entire week last week. He was distressed. The Greek word there is proximo, which is a deep mixture of both anger and sorrow. Okay. Talked about that brief review to see that the city was full of idols. Remember last week it was said that Athens had more gods or idol statues than people. Some historians say there were probably around 30,000 statues of idols and 10,000 people in this city. 
So it wasn't uncommon that you would walk through the city and bump into idols wherever you went. That's how the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue, 17, with the Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with Paul. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. And they said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting. You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears and we want to know what they mean. All the Athenians and foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas, kind of like our culture today. Verse 22, Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. And Paul, you know, he's not sitting there being sarcastic and cynical. He's not making fun of them like, you know, the joke is on them. He's actually paying them some sort of a compliment and saying, I could tell that you're deeply spiritual. Does that remind you anybody today? It's our culture, right? Very spiritual people. Why? As I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Now what you worship is something unknown. I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. And he does not live in temples built by hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man, he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he's not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. And he has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. Verse 32, when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them just sneered, but others said, hey, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council, and a few men became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, and also a woman named Damaris, a member, a number of others. Okay, so um, as we continue our journey through the book of Acts, we're talking a lot about being on mission and what it means for us as individuals and corporately as a church to be on mission. I said this way back, but can I bring you back to this? Most Christians don't get up in the morning and think, I wonder what God has for me to do today. Most Christians get up in the morning and think, I've got something I want to do, and I hope God helps me. Huge difference. If you think, I've got something I need to do today, I hope God helps me, God becomes the means. God exists to serve your purposes, not the other way around. I think this is the reason why many of us fail to capture this passion for mission and what God has for us. Because the reality is we all get up in the morning and go, I've got tons of things I want to do today. Some of them very godly, some of them that God would bless. And I hope he helps me. A missional person gets up in the morning and says, God has a mission for me to do today. 
to talk to somebody, to talk about Jesus, to, to be Jesus to somebody. And I exist. Purpose of my life is to fulfill that purpose. Maybe if our posture was that, you and I would be exposed and open to so many more opportunities to be missional. Amen? Huge difference. Acts 17 is very helpful for us because it reminds us of our culture today. Paul walks into a city that's relativistic, pluralistic, deeply spiritual. It reminds me of the city of Chicago. And it's very helpful for us because Paul needs to witness, minister, be missional in a city that has no concept of the biblical God. And we live in a city in which tons of people have zero knowledge of the Bible or the God of the Bible. How do we do ministry there? Remember last week, commentary from John Stott. Five things. Paul went and he, what? Felt something. And then he, what? Saw something. Good, good. And then he, he went somewhere. Okay. And then he did something. And then he said something. Okay. So that's five. Okay. It's a five-point, three-week sermon. Okay. He went and felt something. He went and saw something. And then he, he went somewhere. And then he, he did something. And then he said something. Last week, we did the first two. We said that Paul went and he felt something. What did he feel? Paroxymo. What is paroxymo? It's a Greek word that is deep, complex kind of mixture of anger, indignation, and sorrow and compassion. It's the same word used of God's reaction to idolatry in Isaiah 63. And we said that the reason why Paul was effective is because he both felt indignation and anger at the sin, at the idolatry, at the rebellion, but he didn't just feel that. He felt sorrow, compassion, love. And a person who understands paroxysmo is a person in our culture today who thinks so highly of God and so highly of people that they want each other, to be in each other's arms. Is that you? Is that me? If we just come at people in our culture with anger, indignation, the sin, they will not hear you. If we just come with love and compassion and good words, they also will not hear you. The combination is what? The cross of Jesus Christ and burning that into our hearts where the justice of God and the love of God met in the same place. And then Paul saw something. What did Paul see? The, the word see is theoreo, from which we get things were theorized. In other words, Paul's not just going, no, idol, idol. Wow, there's lots of idols. He's looking beneath the idols and going, why are they worshiping that? Why are they worshiping them? What we said last week was, if we're going to be effective, we need to see the idols behind idols and why everybody in our culture worships something. Do you know that? Whether you're religious or religious, every single one of us in this room, we are worshipers day and night. The Bible worship is simply to give value, ultimate meaning to something. And people in our culture give value, ultimate meaning to something or someone. And whatever that something or someone is, your God. Every single one of us has something that is at the center of who we are. It is what we place our ultimate value. Idolatry is simply taking good things and placing them to be ultimate things. And every single one of us has that. Something that is our spiritual oxygen. Something that is our emotional oxygen. And we learned last week, you guys, that our idols and our gods, the things that we place our lives on, build our lives on, they don't come through for you. They can't come through for you. Is that news to anybody? Building our lives on these idols of our world, our culture, relationships, career, jobs, marriage, friendship, building our lives on these things is absolute exercise and meaninglessness because they cannot come through for you. The creator God that we worship cannot die, but idols will and can die. 
And the result is that when these idols don't come through for you, we have absolute sense of meaninglessness. Why? If you leave and place entire meaning of your life on something and that thing is gone, of course you're going to feel meaningless. Let me paint an image for you. Lord of the Rings, J.R. Tolkien. The figure Gollum. Remember Gollum? Gollum is the epitome and the picture of. What does Gollum do? He has that ring. And that ring is killing him. That ring is destroying him. That ring is resulting in his emaciated body. And yet, what? he can't let go. And it's haunting and sad when you see Gollum with the ring. Precious. <laughs> now, why is that funny? Because what? It was so good at it? Good God, man. <laughs> One meant to be funny. I needed you to go, oh my gosh, that's me. Now that's the point. By the way, did you know? Did you know? Did you know? Jared Tolkien, when he read the story out loud, when he read the story out loud to children, he actually would say, my precious. Because he wrote it with the intention of knowing that just as the snake in the garden lied and fooled God's prized creation into believing God is not enough. He lies today and comes and says, God is not enough. You need that. Many of us have that ring, whatever that is, and we're holding on to it. And you know what? Your soul is dying. Your soul is dying because that thing is not big enough for your soul. And yet, you hold on to it. You're saying, I need it. It's what I need. It's my meaning in life. And everybody around you looks and says, it's killing you. When we think of people like that, we think drug addicts and prostitutes. They get, let, let me tell you something. A gauge of whether we are, where, where we are with God, a gauge of where we are with God, is not about what we do or don't do. The gauge about where we are with God is about what is our ultimate love. What is our ultimate value? If God is not of central importance in your life, God is of no importance in your life. You can't have it both ways. What did Paul see? Idolatry. Where did Paul go? Let's look. Where did Paul go? The Bible says in verse 17. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as, he says, in the marketplace, day by day with those who happen to be there. Marketplace. The Greek word there, marketplace, is the word agora. Agora. What was the agora? Here's what one commentary says about what the agora or the marketplace was. On or just off the marketplace, agora, were temples, law courts, state offices, public archives, libraries, shops, concert halls, dance halls, gymnasiums, theaters, and galleries. And who was there at the agora? Everybody. What was the agora? The agora was the public place of Athens. It was the public center of Athens. In other words, it was the center of media. It was the media center. What do I mean? This is time before newspapers or TVs or journals. If you want to get the news from somebody, you went to the Agora, where the heralds would show up and say, people, people, listen to the latest news. And they would give the news. 
It was the media center. It was also not just the media center, but a financial center. This is before paper money being printed. It was the stock market where two people would come together and say, here's the deal that we want to make. What you want to sell? What you want to buy? They would shake hands, look into each other, and make a deal. The financial center. It was also the art center. That's where the artists actually did the work and performed. It was the intellectual center, the philosophical center, if you will. There were no journals that people could write and people debate each other's journals. They had to be face-to-face. And philosophically, they debated. Philosophically, they talked. Philosophically, they worked out sort of the intellectual uh, uh, truths of the day. It was also the legal center. That's where the judges heard cases and made legal decisions. Where did Paul go with the gospel? The agora. Where did Paul go with the gospel? The, the public place. Why is that significant? Here it is. What's the principle here? Some pastors would say, you got to go out to the streets to preach the gospel. Dude, there's two problems with that. Number one, today in our culture, there's not one single public space where all of these facets come together. And secondly, if I were to say, we got to go out to the public, preach the gospel, many of you would go, but I'm not a preacher. I'm not called to be a preacher. I'm not a Paul. So therefore, I don't have to do it. What is the principle? Here's the principle, and we'll dig into it. Principle is this. Christianity, if you really understand it, doesn't stay in your private world. It affects your public life. Don't confuse Christianity, which is a personal faith. You enter into it personally, but it doesn't stay personal. It becomes very what? Public out there. If you truly understand the gospel of Jesus Christ and you become a Christian, it doesn't stay in your private world. It goes out to every sphere of your public life. You tracking so far? Nod your head. Say yes? Okay. Now, here's the thing about that. People in our culture today, it doesn't make any sense. Because the prevailing attitude is, your faith, your religion, keep it to yourself. Keep it to yourself. True? Yes? Talk to me. Yes? Keep it to yourself. It's your faith, your religion. Keep it private. Keep it to yourself. It's great. You've got inward peace. It's great that God does these things for you, but keep it to yourself. Don't bring it out to the public. The problem is that the Bible says that's nonsense. Here's the reason why. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 20. Wisdom calls out in the street. She raises her voice in the public square. At the head of the noisy streets, she cries out. In the gateway of the city, she makes her speech. Why does our culture react so like, what? That doesn't make any sense today. Because we're pagans again. What do I mean? Don't think pagan and derogatory terms like, you call me a pagan? You know what paganism is? Paganism is everybody has their own gods. Paganism, everybody has their own gods. Paganism says we all have our territorial gods. We got the God of Ephesus. We got the God of Athens. We got the God of Corinth. We got the God of Rome. We got the vocational gods. We have the God as a fisherman. We have the God as a farmer. We have the God as a, we all have our own gods. And so therefore, because we've all got our own little gods, we keep our own little gods to ourselves, but you don't impose your God to somebody else. Does it sound like any familiar today? Paganism. We're back to paganism again. We says, keep your own God to yourself and let everybody worship their own gods. The problem again is the Bible says that would be nice. But the problem is the God of the Bible and the God of Scripture says, um, I've got a couple issues with that. Number one, God says, uh, I'm supreme creator. Well, what's the significance of that, Peter? I know, see, we don't want to talk about God being creator, creation. Here's what Paul says. Check this out. 
Paul says that the God that we worship, verse 29, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone or an image made by man's design and skill. In other words, Paul's saying the God that we worship is not the product of our making. He's not some God that we make up. And for many of us, it's like, really? Really? He's not a figment of your mind. God, the biblical God, is not who we want him to be. The biblical God is who he is. Did you hear that? The biblical God. See, if you believe that the biblical God, listen, is somebody that you make up, even though it's kind of parts Bible, kind of parts Jesus, you will keep this God private because you will not realize our God is creator. Now, I'm getting to the significance of that in a moment, okay? Here's the second thing that Paul says in verse 24. It says, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. In other words, Paul also says, not only is he not a figment of our our makeup, but Paul says, unlike Eastern religions, pantheism, Hinduism, New Ageism, other isms in our world today, God is not one with creation. I know that sucks for some of us like, really? thought I was like part God, part creation. No, sorry, not, okay? God says he is not part of creation. He's not one recreation. He made the world and everything in it. He is supreme creator. Significance, Paul says this. It's a lot, look, this is logic. This isn't narrow, your Christian view. If God is supreme creator of all things, then he is also the Lord of everything. And that includes the public sphere. If this God is creator of everything, it's illogical to say that God stays right here, but then when it goes to public, if this God is creator of everything, he is the Lord of everything, and that lordship includes every sphere and inch of the public world. Amen? You tracking so far? God is creator And Paul says, because he is creator, he doesn't stay in your private world. He rules and reigns over all aspects of creation. Secondly, not only is he creator, but he's also Lord. I talk to a lot of non-Christians and and they say, uh, you know, I'm kind of interested in Christianity. Why? Because I want to experience deep spirituality. By that they mean like inner peace, inner strength you know, to get kind of reach their goals and meet their goals and have their own agenda. The problem is Christianity says um, it's not about God coming to give you inward peace and God giving inner strength. Yeah, Christianity, when God comes, there's powerful inner transformation, amen, that occurs. Powerful inner transformation because the kingdom of God, the rule and reign of God comes into your life. But along with the kingdom and the rule and reign of God coming into your life, you not only get the influence of the kingdom, you also get A king who rules over that kingdom. A Christian who compartmentalizes their lives doesn't understand Christianity. A Christian who compartmentalizes their lives like, I got my spiritual Sunday life right here. That's great. My work life, relational life, Friendship life, career life, job life, every other life. A Christian who compartmentalizes their life doesn't understand Christianity because when you accept Jesus Christ into your life and the kingdom rule and reign of God comes into your life, you also get a king who rules over all things. Do you know that the English word well, to be well, W-L-L, to be well, 
comes from the basic root word from which you get wholeness. Wholeness. A Christian who has compartmentalized their lives is not a well, whole person. Do you know why the Bible says? The Bible says, in him, Colossians chapter 1, in him all things hold together, meaning away from him all things fall apart, apart. At the very beginning of time, when man and woman decided we're going to usurp God's authority, we're going to displace God, we will sit on the throne of our life. The result, disintegration of every facet of creation. And the only way that we get wholeness, wellness, integration is by coming under the rule and authority and reign of this king once again. Why does Christianity not stay in our private world? Why does it go public? Because your God is the Lord of every area of your life. And if he's the Lord of every area of our lives, that will affect how you work, job, relationships, and every other area. Amen? The question is, is he creator, Lord, or is he somebody who comes into my life to meet my needs and answer my prayers and take care of my problems. I told you the sermon was going to be hard. You know what's bothersome to me? What's bothersome to me is that we forgot, Dallas Willard, Jesus didn't call us to become Christians. Jesus calls to become what? Disciples. And disciples of Jesus Christ surrender and yield the entirety of their life to him and say, you be Lord. I follow you. I deny myself. I carry the cross for the sake of your glory. How in the world did we get this image that God's up there when somebody decides to become a Christian or not? God's like twirling his thumb going, oh, I hope they decide well. Oh, I hope they decide well. Oh, I hope they decide well. We're going, I don't know if I want to be a Christian. It's not the way it works. God is supreme creator and he's up there saying, oh no, it's about me coming into your life and transforming and changing you to reflect my glory. Does this make sense? Why does... Listen, do you know why our spirituality stays in our private world? It's not ultimately because you're not bold enough. You're not da, da, da. It's because he is not your Lord of every area of your life. He is not Lord. He's your benefactor. He's your helper. He's your counselor. He's your advisor. He isn't your When you ask Jesus to come into your heart, did you just ask him to come and reside in your heart? Or did you ask him to come and preside over every area of your life? And this whole Christianity thing just ain't working for me right now, Peter. Uh, Of course it's not working for you. Maybe you should try the real deal. Was that too harsh? Was that too harsh? Do you know, I have regular conversations with people who are doubting their faith and they come and talk to me and they go, I don't know if I was ever a Christian. I go, I don't think you were. <laughs> and I think it's weird that a pastor would say, but I don't say, I grew up in church, read the Bible, and I knelt down, I prayed that prayer. I don't know. And I say this, well, 
People like DJ Bonhoeffer, some of these people said, ultimately, the sign of whether you are a genuine believer or not is life of obedience and radical lordship. So I don't know. What does your life look like? It doesn't look like that. Maybe you're not a Christian. That's okay. But in order for us to move from here, we need to know where we are. Amen? Okay. That's all I'm saying. So Paul moves out with his faith into the marketplace, into the world of ideas, into the public realm. And he says, listen, Jesus is Lord. He is creator. Follow him. Seek him. Worship him. Give your life to him. And I love what C.S. Lewis said. He said, everything that is not eternal is eternally out of date. Maybe we need to declare that some more. Everything that's not eternal is eternally out of date. There is no life in that. Seek him. Search for him. Find him. Okay. Somebody finally says that. All right, fine, 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 fine. The why? Why is lordship. But how do I do this? How do I do this? How do I live my faith out in the public? Okay. I'm not going to tell you how. Not exactly. I'm going to tell you a principle again, and you're going to have to figure out the particulars. Okay? Here's the principle. Let me take you to the Old Testament. You don't have to turn your boss there because of time. Let me, let me take you to the principles. Okay? The principle... Uh, or, 2 Kings 5. Anybody familiar with the story of Naaman? Remember the story of Naaman? Naaman? He's a military prime minister of Syria. Now check this out. So Naaman is a military prime minister of Syria, right? He has leprosy. It's a long story. Very, 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 very unique, kind of interesting story. And and one of his servants says, look, there's this prophet of this God of Israel. Why don't you go and find out if he could do anything? So he goes to Israel, Naaman does, and, and, and he meets Elisha, and, and, and Elisha says, go bathe in, in, in that river. And he says, that's stupid. Why would I want to go bathe? I have leprosy. His servant says, just listen to him. So he goes bathes, and he gets healed. And he comes back, he comes back to Elisha. Elisha says, now I know that there's no God but the God of Israel, okay? Transformation. Now here's the thing. What does Naaman do? Military prime minister. Second, perhaps most important person in Syria. What does he do after his healing, both inwardly and outwardly? Here's what he doesn't do. Here's what he doesn't do. He doesn't go to Elisha and go, I am a believer now. I am a believer now. I believe in the God of Israel. So I'm not going to go back to Syria, those filthy, filthy, filthy idolaters, those pagans. I'm not going to go back there. I'm not going to go there because they worship all these other gods, God of Ramon and all. I'm not going to go back there. So let me stay here, Elisha. Let me stay in the comforts of God's people. Let me stay right here with all the believers so that I don't actually have to go back there and interact with those filthy idolaters. In other words, he doesn't say, let me stay in my Christian bubble. Can I just say something? If you have zero non-Christian friends, you are a bubble boy. Or a bubble girl, however you want to put it. If you've got zero interaction, friendships with non-Christians, you are that person that says, I don't want to go out there. It's filthy idolaters, filthy pagans. And by God forbid, I'm going to go there and get polluted. I'm not. If you have zero relationships with non-Christians, you are living in a Christian ghetto. And you are doing, you are doing no good for the kingdom. Okay? Naaman doesn't do that. Here's what he also does not do. He also doesn't say, I experienced God, inner transformation. This feels wonderful. I'm going to go back, be the military prime minister, and ain't nobody going to know. I'm just going to go about doing my job. When somebody says, what you do in Israel? Oh, nothing, 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 (laughs) nothing. You're like not a leper anymore. What happened? (laughs) Oh, you know, I just, I bathed and voila, I was changed. He doesn't keep his faith 
private. Do you know what he does? This is so fascinating. Go home and read this. This is so fascinating. Bible is so fascinating. Here's what he does. He says to Elisha, Elisha, do me a favor. He says, will you pray for me? That God would forgive me because when I go into the temple, the king always leans on my arms and he bows down to his God. And I'm going to bow down as well. I'm his military advisor. But uh, get some of your servants to pack two big bags of dirt. Come again. Of dirt. Right here, dirt. Just bag it up. The two mules can carry. Why? Here's what I'm going to do. Naaman says, when I go into the temple to bow down, with my master, I'm going to spread the dirt over the temple. And I'm going to bow down with him. Why are you going to do that? Are you superstitious? No, no, no. It's going to be witness. Everyone will know that I no longer do my job for the sake of that God, but for the honor of the God of Israel. And when they ask, I'll tell them. He doesn't privatize his faith and says, I know what he's going to know. He says, I will do my job and do it to the best of my ability. So here's my question for you. Principal, you ready? What the heck does it mean for you to spread some dirt in your workplace? Christians are so lame. You know, because some of you are sitting there going, but tell me how. Think for a moment for crying out loud. Why does the pastor got to tell you everything? Does it make sense? Because what it means for some of you to spread dirt doesn't look like that for other people. Think critically. What does it mean for you? Okay, fine, I'll tell you. Here's what it means for you to spread dirt. For good God. Here's what it means for you to spread dirt, okay? Here's what I did and learned from this experience. I'm going to speak to college students, okay? Because I normally speak to young adults, married couples, college students. College students, listen. Here's how I tried to spread dirt. Fail miserably. Freshman in college at Purdue, I love Jesus. I am excited about him. I'm gung-ho. So here's, what I, here's my witness, right? First day of dorm, you know, you meet your roommate and all that. Well, I, I went a couple of days before and I set up my room. But in setting up my room, here's what I did. I got this big old portrait of Jesus. I'm not even exact. I got this big old, it was like this big, I got this big portrait. It was one of those like old, you know, very like, you know, picture of Jesus. And then I bought a couple candles. <laughs> and then I went to Christian bookstore and I found the stinking biggest Bible that bookstore ever had. Okay, it was like this thick and it was like this big. And right on my desk, portrait of Jesus, candles, and the Bible. I was trying to be a witness, you know what I'm saying, to my roommate. It wouldn't surprise you, of course, that the first day I actually meet him, he doesn't want to look me in the eye. He doesn't want to talk to me. He is freaked out. He's freaked out. And we became good friends. And later on, he said, Peter, I want you to know, when I walked into that room, I went straight to my counselor and said, I want another roommate. <laughs> I'm living with a freaky cult worshiper, okay? That whole year, here's how it went for me. Here's how it went for me. Guys on the floor would be like, Peter, let's go play some basketball. You know what I did? I said, oh, no thanks. And I instead chose to go play basketball with my Christian friends. Hey, Peter, let's go eat. I mean, I should be thankful they even asked this dumb nerd. You know what I mean? Hey, let's go eat together, man. Guys on the dorm floor, many of them who were not Christian. What I do? Oh, no, no, no. I'm waiting for my Christian friends to come so I could eat in the cafeteria with my Christian friends. Hey, Peter, there's a party going on. Is there going to be drinking? Of course there's going to be drinking, you idiot. 
Well, if there's going to be drinking, then I'm not going to go because, you know, under 20, blah, 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 blah. So I'm not going to. That whole year, my witness in spreading the dirt, picture of Jesus, candles, and reading a big, fat Bible, saying no to every invitation I got. Here's what it means for you. You know what this means for you, some of you? It means that after work for you, instead of going out with your Christian friends to a bar to drink and eat, you go out with your non-Christian friends. Instead of when you want to go see a movie, uh, let me call up my small group. Why would you want to call your small group to go see a movie? Why would you want to do that? Not because you don't love them. Do you not see them enough? We're crying out loud. <laughs> what would it look like if you did everyday experience? And you're, okay, what, what is some, for some of you, you know what it means? That means it's reflected how you treat your employees. How do you treat your employees? Because if the gospel deeply resonates in your heart and your heart's been transformed and changed, how do you treat your employees? How do you do your work? And the list could go on and on and on. What does it mean for you not to privatize your faith? Ain't nobody going to know I'm a Christian. And also, what does it mean for you? I'm just going to be a group of Christians. What does it mean for you to be a name and walk boldly into that temple, into that workplace and say, I'm going to spread some dirt and I'm going to let everybody here know that I worship the God of Israel in a moment. This is the reason why when non-Christians go, Christians are just, they're just they, they don't think. Christians... They're just like pat answers. Are you kidding me? The Bible, the Bible makes your life more complicated, not easy. It forces you to think. What does it mean for you? Witness. Spread some dirt. Does that make sense? So next week I'm going to come and ask you, how'd you do this week spreading some dirt? How, how'd you do? How'd you do? How'd you guys do this week? And please, college students, don't get any ideas from me, Okay. Please, no portrait of Jesus. Maybe your pastor, but not a portrait of Jesus. <laughs> ah, that would be even more weird. Like, what? Who? What? Who is that? What? <sighs> Help him, Lord. Right, right. Help him, Lord. Right. <laughs> Where am I? Okay. All right. What did Paul do? Okay, I, I need to spend a little bit of time here, and then we'll be done for today. What did Paul do? Look at, look at verse 18, okay? Look at verse 18. This is, this is very, very important. And we'll, we'll, we're going to tease this out some more next week. So a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, and we'll talk about these guys next week and find out what they are, began to dispute with them. Some of them asked, what is this babbler, seed picker, trying to say? And others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. And they said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. You guys, everybody, can you look up here? Can you look up here? This is so important for our principle today. The Bible says that Paul preached about Jesus and the resurrection. He preached about Jesus and the resurrection. Remember my intro in my sermon earlier. He preached about Jesus and the resurrection. Why is that important? Because Paul goes out to the public place and he says, Jesus is God. Jesus is risen. In other words, when he makes the case for why somebody should be a Christian, Paul doesn't make a pragmatic appeal or an emotional appeal. When Paul says, this is why I'm a Christian, he doesn't come to somebody and say, be a Christian because you'll have peace in your heart. He doesn't say be a Christian because your life will work out better or your problems will be solved. When Paul says this is the reason why you need to be a Christian, he, he points to objective truth. He 
He points objective truth. Paul doesn't get up and saying, look, I'm not saying if it's, I'm not saying if the Christianity is true, if it works for you. I'm saying it works for you because it's true. He doesn't get up and say, listen, listen, Christianity isn't true because it's relevant. It's relevant because it's true. He doesn't get up and say, look, Christianity isn't true because it changes your life. It changes your life because, say it with me, it's true. Do you get the difference? Do you get the difference? Paul, when he talks about the validity of the Christian life, Christian faith, he appeals not to their emotional, pragmatic side. He appeals to who Jesus is and what he has done. You don't have to make Jesus relevant for people. He already is. You just need to show them how. Maybe this will connect with nobody, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give it a shot. Here's why this is important. Because I look at all the evangelism, all the witness, all the church marketing stuff, and here's what I hear about why people should become a Christian, right? Four steps to a great marriage. You need Jesus, he'll help your marriage better. Five steps to reach your goals and success in life. You got that guy in Houston. Oh, Lord, forgive me. I don't, oh. I'm, I'm not going to rip my own brothers and sisters. So I'm, I'm going to stop right here. What I hear is you need to believe in Jesus because he'll meet your needs. He'll give you peace. Let me tell you something. You sit there going, well, that's baloney. Do you know why many of us in this room today are struggling with God? Because the faith Christian life that we believe is one in which we believe in our hearts. He exists to help me. To solve my problems. To help me figure this out. And so here's what happens. When our life doesn't work anymore, we say what? I'm done with Christianity. And I wish to God, I wish to God, before you become a Christian, somebody sat you down and said, listen, listen, listen. Here's the reason why you should be a Christian. It's not because if you do, your life will be easier. It'll get harder. Here's the reason why you should be a Christian. It won't mean that there's inner peace. There'll be some inner peace, but there'll be struggle because you'll no longer serve the enemy. Here's the reason why you should become a Christian. Not so that all the problems will be solved. The reason why you become a Christian is because your life isn't working because you sit on the throne of your life and you need to have Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord. Every single week, I have you coming into my office and saying, I won't be a Christian anymore. And the list goes, at the end of the day, it doesn't work for me. Jesus says, he'll only work for you when you believe in him, whether he works for you or not. Can I say that again? Christian life will only work for you if you believe him, if you trust him, if you yield your life to him, whether he works for you or not. If you seek to meet Christ to get your needs met, you will neither meet him nor get your needs met. I implore you, child of God, I implore. I can't yell any louder. So so I'm just going to have to slow down here and say this. Listen, listen, listen. My heart is broken. Whenever somebody walks into my office and says, I don't want to be a Christian. Why? 
Because my relationship sucks. I didn't get that job. I didn't get in that school. They dumped me. He dumped me. She dumped me. I can't solve this problem. If you and I are sharing the gospel of the gospel, because if we do that, our lives will be better and so on and so forth, then we are, we are giving a word description of Christianity. We are giving a word description of Christianity that says, if you believe and trust in God, everything Essentially, God exists to serve your needs. And so therefore, when you have problems, he'll help you with your problems. But what happens to that person when their problems are not solved, when healing doesn't come, when cancer shows up, when loved ones die? What happens to the Christian who has a word Christian view that says, I'm a Christian because God comes and services my needs? And what would happen to a Christian who became a Christian because the realities of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the realities of the gospel of Jesus Christ is Jesus Christ is the Son of God who dies on the cross for the sins of humanity, who rises again defeating Satan's sin and death. And he will return someday and restore and renew all things. And I bank my life on that. You know what will happen to a person who bases their faith on the essence of truth and realities of the gospel? When dark times come, of course they're disappointed and impacted by it. But they're able to look beyond it and see the big picture. And they say, Jesus is still Lord. The tomb is still empty. The kingdom of God still advances. Hold on, I'm not done yet. The Holy Spirit is still alive today. He still changes life. And I bake my life on the truth that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who dies for the sins of humanity and rises again. That is what I bank my life on. Hmm? What about you? What about you? Read the book of Acts. The apostles, they heal somebody. They don't come and go, did you heal that? Did you see that healing? Don't you want some healing? They don't. Or when somebody gets delivered, they don't come and say, did you see that? Wasn't that wonderful? How much of them deliverance in your life? I could strangle the prosperity gospel of its life. Because it's leaving men and women saying, I'm done with Christianity. I want to go, you never tried Christianity in the first place. You need i got tons of stuff, but I, I, need, I need to wrap up here. Because here's the thing. What? Here, here's the thing, you guys. And the Christian, oh, I was so hoping to talk to those of you that are not a Christian. I'm going to have to do this next week. If you're a Christian, I need to talk to you today because here's the thing. Is he still sovereign king? Even when you're going through some of your darkest times. Is he still your sovereign king? Because by golly darn it, I can't believe I said golly, by gosh darn it, even when you're going through hard times, he is still sovereign king who defeated sin, Satan, and death and rose as king and lord. Is he still your wise, all-knowing counselor when your prayers are not answered? Is he still the lover of your soul when your desire for marriage isn't answered and you are single, and your deepest yearnings to have a family are not met, is he still the lover of your soul who meets the deepest needs of your heart? Let me end with this. Remember John chapter 6? By the way, I hope this doesn't deter you guys from sitting up here, because I like to sit up here when I finish, because I'm tired. John chapter 6. 
John chapter 6 is, is one of my favorite passages because it's, it's the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000. And, and, and here's what happens. Jesus feeds the 5,000. And then, you know, he, he ups the ante, you know, and he says, oh, by the way, yeah, I fed the 5,000. Y'all want to make me prophet and king, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to suffer and I'm going to die. And anybody that wants to follow me, you also got to suffer and die too. And the and, and majority of people were like, oh, this is where we go home. They all left. Jesus turns to the 12, and he's looking at some of you and me today and go, what about you? Do you, do, do you want to go too? I know life isn't working now. Things, do you want to go too? And Peter, you know, 99% of the time he said dumb things. This was one time when he said something smart. He said, to whom shall we go? You eternal life. Do you know how the text begins? Here's how the text begins. John chapter 6 is very early on. It says the people flock, flocking to Jesus because of the signs that he was performing. He was healing the sick and he was feeding them. And so people are gathering and they're clamoring for Jesus. And Jesus does a funny thing. Jesus, instead of like being clamoring, Jesus decides to withdraw. He, he says, okay, I'm going to see. He withdraws. And the reason why he withdraws is because he knew, the Bible says, their hearts. And what he saw in their hearts was they were seeking Jesus, not... They were seeking Jesus not because they saw who he was. They were seeking Jesus because of what he was doing. See, he, he, he was feeding their appetites. They were hungry. And, and Jesus was feeding their appetites. And, and they're saying, oh, this is really good. You're healing people. This is really good. And Jesus says, if you don't see beyond the sign to who I am, then you're missing the point. And he withdraws. There are a lot of us that are very enthusiastic about Jesus, but if we're enthusiastic about the wrong Jesus, it's no honor to him. I'm enthusiastic about that Jesus who's going to help me find the spouse. I'm enthusiastic about Jesus who's going to help me find the job. I'm enthusiastic about that Jesus who answers my prayers. I'm enthusiastic about Jesus who can help me lift me out of. I'm enthusiastic about Jesus who's about the causes that I'm at. And Jesus says, if you're enthusiastic about the wrong Jesus, not Jesus of the Bible, it's no honor to him and you're missing the point. The point is Jesus coming and saying as he feeds them, I'm your bread. I am your bread that meets your needs. And Jesus says, I didn't come to give you power so that you can, you know, meet the appetites you already have. He says, I came to give you whole new appetites. That's what it means to be born again. Jesus doesn't come and say, here, here's a little bit of power. Here's a little bit of help. And you can continue feeding on your appetite. Jesus says, I came to give you a whole new appetite. Because that thing ain't never going to fill you up. People clamoring for Jesus. I want Jesus because, you know. And Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. The son of God who is risen from the dead. And I didn't come to help you meet your agenda. I came to give you a whole new agenda. Our appetites define us, and if our appetite is for the wrong Jesus who comes merely to help us meet our needs, we'll go on being hungry forever. Why are you seeking Him? Why do you worship Him? Why? Are you here today? Is he merely the means to a larger end? 
Or is he your ultimate end? Can we say with the Apostle Peter, you are the Christ to whom to who else shall we go? Bow your heads with me, church. Bible says Jesus is God who has risen from the dead, defeating Satan, sin, and death once and for all. It's when we don't place our faith in our feelings or experiences. But it's the truth of the gospel that Jesus Christ is who he says he is and he has done what he said he was going to do. That you and I could walk this difficult yet glorious journey with confident joy. I want to give you a moment as you pray. Will you ask that question? Why do I seek him? Why do I pursue him? Why am I a Christian? The source of my strength. You are the source of my life. I worship you. Yes. Church, we sing that together. You are the source of my strength. You are the source. You are the source of my strength. And I worship you. And I worship you. Total praise to you. Sing that one more time. You are the source of my strength. 
You are the source of my life, and I worship. And I worship in total praise, in total praise to you. Church, sing that again. You are, you are the source of my strength. You are, you are, you are the strength of my life. And I worship you, and I worship you in total praise to you. And God, in the quietness of our hearts this morning as we end, for those of us that are seeking and searching because we don't know you, we thank you that you are a God who seeks and searches after us and pursues us relentlessly. Will you speak clearly to my brothers and my sisters that are here that don't know you and perhaps desire you are seeking you? Help them to know that they're seeking you because you have been seeking them first. God, I, I, I go, I pray for those of us who are struggling and wrestling in our lives because of major issues. And God, I don't want to make light of where folks are and what they're wrestling with. And along with meeting their needs and where they're at, will you please help them lift up, look up and see the one who reigns on high, the one who is sovereign, the one who is eternal, the one who rules and reigns in all love and justice compassion. Help us to catch a glimpse of you. Teach us this week what it means to spread some dirt that others might know and hear about this amazing, awesome God. Our creator, our sovereign. Name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And all God's people said, Amen. Have a great week, you guys. See you back here next Sunday.